I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Pack up your best prawn sandwich and your salt and vinegar crisps, Dolly. We're going on tour. We sure are. In autumn of this year, we will be visiting London, Dublin, Salford in Greater Manchester and Glasgow. What a wonderful selection of cities. Can you tell our listeners how they can join us? I very well can. Tickets to the Hilo experience go on sale this Friday at 10am. Go to fameproductions.com forward slash Hilo. And we will link that in the show notes. We look forward to seeing lots of you there or at the very least, our mums. the Hilo, the weekly pop culture and current affairs podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We are recording this episode of the Hilo a week in advance, which means we have no idea what's going on in the news <laughs> as we record this. So I'm so sorry we cannot regale you with this week's topical comedy, tragedy and horror the way that we usually do. We are recording an author special with Rosie Saunt and Helen West, founders of The Rooted Project and authors of Is Butter a Carb? Unpicking Fat from fiction in the world of nutrition. So that's coming up later. What are you doing in our week off, Pandora? I'll have been to see Cirque du Soleil, which I am so excited about. I can't believe I've never been. Have Very you been? Ni- no, yeah, like in the 90s. <laughs> oh, I, I, lit- I literally still, like I'm 10 years old, pine at the Royal Variety performance. Oh, because babe. So I said to my mum, um, I've booked us tickets for Cirque du Soleil for your birthday. She was like, and she was like, 90.95, Carl, it wants its show back. <laughs> no, she was like, oh, wow, that's so lovely. Did we Have we not been before? And I said, no, you've taken every other sibling for a birthday but me. So this is my way of getting us there. Uh, when you listen to this, I'll be not quite, but almost on my way to Cornwall for a few days, where I'll be writing by the seaside and my husband and toddler will be digging in the sand. How about you, doll? I'm not going to be too far away from you, actually. I don't want that to sound threatening. I am going to be in my favourite place in the world, in Devon, for a week with my mum and dad on our first family holiday in 10 years. So I'm kind of, I can barely remember what a family holiday is like and I just hope we will come back alive. Well, in line with last week's episode, I will be feigning an accent, hiding behind a pot plant, not eating breakfast or taking any lifts to avoid you and your family on your family holiday. (laughs) Give us some recommendations though, Dolly, before you go. I loved Emily Evis on Desert Island Discs, who is the co-organiser of Glastonbury, which was founded by her parents on their family farm in Somerset. Music history fans will adore this episode in which she talks about how Glastonbury began, uh, the hostility from locals at the beginning of the festival's life, how kind of maverick and seat of their pants the whole organisation used to be and how much security and safety and regulation has had to tighten up in later years. She talks about her most memorable performances over the years. The fact that the booking of Jay-Z was a headliner that brought the most criticism uh, more than any other booking she's made. Why is that? She said just because it's a big hip-hop artist. But she said she was so... She dedicates uh, a song 
to the moment after Jay-Z's performance. She chooses one of her Desert Island discs to, to kind of mark. And remember the moment after Jay-Z's performance where she said she just lay on the grass and just felt this huge relief where she just knew that she had made the right choice and apparently... And I remember watching it on TV and it just felt electric, but I think people are so nostalgic about Glastonbury and I think it's just known as being more of a rock gig so mm -hmm. you know I think British people in particular and this is something I could talk about at length which I won't today and I will another time I think we're very very bad with cultural change when we have decided en masse that we like something being the way it is I think we're very 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 bad at any sort of progression uh, which is why actually I think people have been um, so hard on this series of Killing Eve and I think it's just because people know Phoebe Waller-Bridge isn't writing it and once we have I think we're just like toddlers once we find a meal we like we want to eat it every day <laughs> and it just doesn't make any sense because Jay-Z is such such a mass audience you know Glastonbury now is the size of Oxford city centre did you read the interview that she did with um Catelyn Moran no. in the times recently where you know Catelyn said and what about all those people who say why don't you make it bigger and Emily says well it comprises 12 farms mm. she said you know it's 135,000 people mm. it we would just keep making it bigger mm. and bigger it's a very funny piece though she talks about people, break, people breaking in and how one man like heli flew yeah. over the gate and they they actually allowed the security guards just <laughs> clapped as he came over and I think they let him stay because they admired the ingenuity the hutzpah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, she talks a lot about how much rain has featured uh, prominently when she's reminiscing on past Glastonbury's and she talks about what it was like Growing up as a kind of child of this festival, there's a very sweet story where she was taken on stage right before the Style Council when she was eight to do a violin solo. <laughs> um, and she talks about how weird it was to have kind of all these people descend on your home as an adolescent, knowing that they believed that for the next four days, this was their home as well. She also speaks beautifully about the impact of the death of her mother, not just on her as her daughter and on their family, but also on the festival too. And uh, she talks about how as part of her mother's legacy, she really focuses on looking after people. She says that her memories of her mother at Glastonbury is calming kind of uh, lost or disorientated people and taking them to sit under a tree in their garden and kind of reassuring them. And she just sounds like a very caring person. And she said that's a really important part of Glastonbury. And that's, I think, what makes it so different to so many other festivals. So it's a beautiful episode. And Emily Evers seems like just a really kind person who's, absolutely passionate about the festival as well as its heritage and its future and can you believe I still have not gone I can't believe you still haven't gone I've never gone either I really want to go but I want to do it like a holiday mm. I want to take you know days off both before and after Mm. I want to be able to have set aside the money as if I was going on. Yeah, because that's a, they are. I want so to expensive. eat like a queen. I want to drink like a king. God, that's a bit gendered, isn't it? I'd quite like to stay in Mount whatever it's called for four million pounds a night. What's Camp, that? Mount, uh, Camp Kerala? Oh yeah, <laughs> the like yeah. super spendy bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I need to save up approximately. £30,000 to go to Glastonbury. You, did you used to go to festivals? Yeah, loads. Yeah. Secret Garden, Wilderness. That was another one I went to loads. 
sort of tried to block a few of them out of memory because I always used to get unbelievably lost and my my overriding memory of festivals in my early 20s was tripping over people's tent pegs yeah and my phone being out of signal and just kind of whimpering i just want to go to bed (laughs) i love festivals and this is the first year in years and years and years and years that i've decided i decided to not go to any and i thought that i'd feel a relief but actually i really miss them so next year i think i'm just gonna tightly pack every weekend (laughs) festivals i also love jack munro on russell brand's under the skin podcast i haven't listened to an extended podcast interview with her before and this conversation was just terrifically interesting i think very unfairly jack has been caricatured in the past as being somewhat erratic or sometimes irresponsible in things that she has said maybe online but what you get from this interview is a person who is highly highly intelligent and incredibly compassionate and thoughtful and very ambitious and really quite an intellectual jack monroe is a food writer amongst um, other things and she mainly specializes in cooking on a budget uh, her latest cookbook that's coming out is about um, cooking with tin cans and debunking lots of myths around tin cans and talking a lot about food banks and how she historically benefited from food banks I had no idea that her career didn't actually begin with documenting uh, cooking on a budget and recipes on a budget because that was the blog that I first uh, knew her from, which was a tremendously successful, brilliant and very useful blog, which is what got picked up and gave her first book deal. But where she actually began was documenting local government, um, local government meetings and local government matters when she was unhappy with the way that her town, Southend, that she was living in, the way that uh, matters were being handled, the way that single parents in particular and people in poverty were being treated and being discussed about. So she took the initiative of attending local government meetings and then she would blog and kind of campaign on them she's just a very impressive person I think very inspirational in the interview she discusses why she sued Katie Hopkins Um, what was that about again what did Katie Hopkins Katie Hopkins wrote a tweet about her that heavily implied that she had vandalized a war memorial right which wasn't true so Jack she talks in the interview that Jack tweeted her and said if you don't delete this I'll sue you or if you don't apologize I'll sue you she said all she ever wanted was an apology And she didn't. And then she freaked out because she just, you know, as most of us don't understand the legality of things or the cost of things or how you would even begin with that stuff. And she said her inbox was just full of lawyers who said they'd do it on a pro bono basis for her. And I think the process took, I think it was two years. Um, It was a really long time. And she talks about, and she did successfully sue Katie Hopkins, but she talks about something you don't think about. I think when you think about suing, you think about like just handing over a claim to lots of busy lawyers who just do it all for you. And then you emerge triumphant out of a courtroom with a fistful of cash. And actually she said that it took so much away from her life and her salary those two years because it was so labour intensive and she had to keep travelling to London traveling to her lawyers give so much information chew over the whole thing over and over again so it was a very kind of traumatizing experience I think she also talks about learning how to say sorry and the journey that she's been on in terms of admitting a mistake and kind of employing all your humility and as she said kind of keeping your head down and wanting to learn and become a better person and she said 
she talks about what that process has been like, which I think nearly every person I know, including myself, uh, could listen to and learn from. She also talks about her recent sobriety and obviously that conversation with Russell Brand, who's a recovering addict, uh, is a very interesting and informative one. The clip I would like to insert is her thoughts on proportional representation, which is, I'm sure most of you know, an electoral system. And she believes that this should be our model for electing government rather than our current method of first past the post. And I think she had some really thought-provoking theories on the subject. I'd always deeply suspected that a rainbow coalition was the was the way to get things done. Because what you have is not one group of people adhering to one group of principles that they hold fast to that's absolutely right and whipped into shape. You've got a bunch of people that have to sit down and they represent a wider group of the town and they have to juggle their priorities and they have to discuss things like adults and they have to compromise and they have to do what's best for the most people. Mm. And that makes me think that our parliamentary system would be so much more representative if we had a coalition government that was a coalition across the board. So instead of a first-past-the-post system, which we have, which is just so boringly, statistically difficult to ever make work for the ordinary person, if we had a coalition of um, of a range of ideas, and I accept that that means having people in government who I may not agree with personally or politically, there would be, to say, that under alternative, what's it called, proportional voting, proportional representation, um, we'd end up with like some UKIP MPs. And yeah. people go, oh, no, but there'll be UKIP MPs. And you're like, but do you know what? I, I abhor everything that they stand for. I would never vote for them myself. But there are UKIP people in our country. We can't just pretend they don't exist. I was reading something by her recently when she was talking about, and this is not something I knew, and again... Like you said, this is where she's so such an important voice in educating us around what it actually is to live on the poverty line, uh, which she did for a long time with her with her long, young child. But I didn't realise how many more people are accessing food banks now yeah. than they were five years ago, and that's a really worrying social trend. And we should really be looking at where that's coming from. But that's an issue that the government needs to address urgently because this should only be temp- a temporary solution. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What have you been enjoying, Panda? Well, I was enjoying and got halfway through until I lost it, which is something I did with Shantaram back in the day. Uh, Swan Song by Kelly Greenberg Jeffcott. Love that book. Which I really... So it's about... Uh, it's Truman Capote, the infamous writer and author of Cold Blood, who was writing in America in the 50s and 60s and 70s, yeah. probably yeah. heyday in the 60s. And it's about his swans, which is a series of aristocratic ladies he kept around him as his confidants. And they were the, I mean, he was gay, but they were the loves of his life. Um, and for reasons 
clear only to himself, he wrote a series of articles for Esquire magazine, which were meant to be excerpts of a book that just never appeared, Mm. did it? But those articles completely destroyed his friendships and arguably his his life. His life went really downhill after that. But I remember, I actually remember reading a quote from Dolly at the beginning of the book that said, I am obsessed with Googling pictures of Babe Paley. And I was reading the book and Googling pictures of Babe Babe Paley and uh, is it Gloria Guinness? And I was already obsessed with Lee. And Slim, I love Slim. It's such an amazing name. And CZ. CZ. Yeah, yeah. And I was already obsessed with Lee Radziwill, who was the sister of Jackie Anassis. And they had like a really competitive, quite weird relationship. And Truman kind of said, and this is something that anecdotally I'd heard, that actually she was like the cooler one of the, you know, it was always a bit galling that Jackie O was the really revered one of, of the sisters. And Lee's actually my favourite to look at look at pictures of. Anyway, it's it's a novel, so I don't I can't even imagine how much it's a novel, but it's it's very naturalistic, isn't it? It's a kind of reimagining of real real life. The level of events. detail and the gossip. Years, yeah, ten years of research it took her. Oh my dear lord! But you feel it in the book. You feel that research. Yeah, it's jam packed. I think it's a beautiful piece of work. I I completely adored it. And it was long-listed for the... Women's Prize for Fiction, yeah. Yeah. It's for anyone who loves that period of history and it's very glamorous and it's kind of salacious and it's, you know, Manhattan at its most glittering. I just found it so addictive. It's a big book, but I think I read it in about two days because it is just so compelling and she sketches all the women and it's the swans there are quite a lot of them and there's a reference at the beginning at the front of the book with pictures of these very beautiful elegant women but you know it could it could be easy to get lost in all of them because they're basically all very glamorous (laughs) they all smoke a lot they're all married to cruel rich men and they're all kind of transgressive and shocking in their own way but she manages to totally draw and define them so specifically so you know the difference between every single one and you really keep on top of that the, the thing that did tickle me the most is, and I don't much, know much about her, but the way she talked about Pam Churchill, who's Winston Churchill's mother, like such such damning descriptions of this kind of serial man-eater, I suppose. Like she was famous for just, just securing these men. Anyway, I lost it before I could finish it, so I'm going to have to buy it again. <laughs> I've also been really enjoying The Bold Type, which has sponsored this podcast before. It started in 2017, and I think one of the exec producers, or at least she was heavily involved, was Joanna Coles, who's the British-born editor of US Cosmopolitan. And it is very much a Cosmo vibe, you know, lots of perfect makeup and amazing hair. And they all wear like statement bangles and the fashion closet is like nothing you've ever seen. And it's all very like, it's so sassy. Uh, the second series, so much better than the first series. And my husband, who loves The Devil Wears Prada, is absolutely obsessed in a way I've never seen him obsessed with any stories. He claps his hands gleefully when a new when a new episode arrives. The but, Devil Wears Prada is like his religion, isn't it? Yeah. And I thought he would be like, this is nothing like Devil Wears Prada. How could you sully it with, with its name? But actually he's like, he's actually very into it. And what we would both think about it, and I think the reviews kind of speak to this, is that it is really idealised and quite naive about the way these magazines are run and it also assumes that it's got this kind of like 
endless amount of money. I mean, they hold board meetings every day with like 20 men and sort of like the social media editor will go up and like lobby for change directly with the board. Everyone who's ever worked on a newspaper or magazine knows that you don't like, you don't go chill with the board members and they certainly don't meet every day in the same building. So it's like, it's very unrealistic in that sense. But what it is and what I love is I feel like it really sets an agenda for a lot of kind of the nuance of reporting and how we can move forward in that. So there's one of the reporters is writing a story on a woman that makes moon cups and for every moon cup it's a startup it's done really well you know it's kind of female founder for every moon cup that she sells one is donated to charity and then she goes to speak to this charity where the moon cups have been donated and the charity says these are actually dangerous for women who don't have access to regular sanitation because they need to be washed these are this charity you know bit of the business is a ruse because these are moon cups for privileged women and so she's really stuck because she knows the piece that she wanted to write and she knows the piece that her editor will turn it into which is a a salacious expose which is what we see on these websites Mm. all the time you know as this uncovering of a fraud and I thought that was really interesting in the way that we relay information in the digital age in how it's almost impossible to do good now and to report on good things because of the access of information that we have and the, and the world that we live in now and um it's just it's done really cleverly stuff like uh they really dig into the diversity policy and what that means for the people from who benefit from a diversity policy or the people who don't get jobs because of it and what it feels like for them to be on kind of the opposing side of the hiring process and it's a really strong series I think there's a third series I don't know if it's in the UK yet but I I actually really recommend it I think it's doing really good things Mm. I've also been really enjoying TED Talks Daily which is a daily 15 minute podcast I love the format of the mini monologues on specific subjects it's such a perfect length of time for me I often don't get to the end of uh, podcasts so that 15 minutes is really doable I wanted to go in deep on one that I was really interested in by David Brooks who's a New York Times columnist and the talk is titled The Lies Our Culture Tells Us About What Matters there's also an hour-long TED interview which is the long-form version of Brooks talking about the crisis of individualism with the founder of TED. Um, I haven't listened to that yet. But this mini one pertains to something I'm really focusing on um, at the moment. I've been consuming a lot of David Brooks content recently. I'm currently reading his best-selling book, The Second Mountain, and I really recommend his podcast with both Tina Brown and also Ezra Klein. In this TED talk, he debunks three lies. One, career success is fulfilling. Two, I can make myself happy, which he calls the lie of self-sufficiency. Three, you are what you accomplish. Individualism and the effects of of individualism is something I've been thinking about a lot. Individualism is a political philosophy, well, and economic and social, that believes in personal freedom, self-reliance, and that we are all unique. Basically something we see parlayed a lot in social culture right now. And And that looking out for number one is best for society. David Brooks says that right now we're not just in a political crisis and an economic crisis and a moral crisis, but also in a social crisis. People are, as we know, lonelier than ever. The suicide rate is rising. Mental health issues are rising. Life expectancy, he said, and I don't know if this is just in the US, but life expectancy is falling, not rising. Individualism, he is adamant, is not working. So his metaphors in his book, The Second Mountain, 
are of mountains and valleys and I find them really intriguing. The first mountain that you reach is all about goals and personal fulfillment, the things we've been told constitute a happy and successful life. The valley that you might fall into off the first mountain is a place of isolation and fragmentation and it's where you might fall after being fired, perhaps getting a divorce, losing someone you love, having a mental breakdown, basically having the foundations of your life and what you thought would make you happy really rocked. And the second mountain which Brooks writes about is about a relational life. The way out of the valley and onto the second mountain is about discovering a moral life and what he calls radical mutuality, commitment and interdependence. And that can be through one or all four of these things, a vocation, different to a job, a family, a faith and a community. I don't think that huge societal ills can be erased by a commitment to a moral life. But I have to say that what he says is basically the elevated and fully thought out conclusion that I'd been drawing towards for some time. And I found it enormously comforting and galvanising too. Some have accused his argument of being a little facile or simplistic or mad old man. He's often mocked as a conservative commentator, although... He's actually not particularly conservative anymore. And that's kind of what his book is about, about how he realised he, he wasn't particularly conservative and therefore he lost his conservative circle and that had what he'd been all about and he didn't really know what he was about. So at least not socially, he's not very conservative anymore. But I, I truly do not see how this is not a better way to live than how we are currently. He's also very into religion or or faith, but I don't find that off-putting. That's just one of the mutual relationships he puts forward as an option. I'd just like to insert a clip here. The second lie is I can make myself happy. That if I just win one more victory, lose 15 pounds, do a little more yoga, I'll get happy. And that's the lie of self-sufficiency. But as anybody on their deathbed will tell you, The things that makes people happy is the deep relationships of life, the losing of self-sufficiency. The third lie is the lie of the meritocracy. The the message of the meritocracy is you are what you accomplish. The myth of the meritocracy is you can earn dignity by attaching yourself to prestigious brands. The emotion of the meritocracy is conditional love. You can earn your way to love. The anthropology of the meritocracy is you're not a soul to be purified. You're a set of skills to be maximized. And the evil of the meritocracy is that people who've achieved a little more than others are actually worth a little more than others. Support for the Hilo comes from Christie. Christie was founded in 1850 by Henry Christie, inventor of the towel that we know today. Since then, Christie have continued to produce high quality and long lasting towels, bed linen and home accessories all designed in Manchester. Mine and Pandora's favourite activity, other than eating copious amounts of salt and vinegar crisps, is reading in bed or in the bath. Not together. We've never done that, but there's always time, I suppose. Find me a big enough bath. Christy is here for your bed and bath needs. Christy bed linens boast high thread counts, unique designs, and are made with the finest cotton. They are also known for their towels, especially the supreme high-grow range, which gets fluffier after every wash. I love a fluffy bath sheet. Very hard to find. And if you don't believe us, believe Wimbledon, because Christy are also the official towel supplier for the Wimbledon Championships, producing the iconic 
iconic towels used by the players on Centre Court. So join us and Andy Murray in living a Christie life and shop online at christie.co.uk and get 25% off your order at christie.co.uk with the code THEHILO. T's and C's apply. Thanks very much to Christie. It's now time for our author special about a book that I can guarantee will change the way you think about food, wellness and what constitutes a healthy diet. Is butter a carb? Unpicking fact from fiction in the world of nutrition is the ultimate myth-busting bible by registered dietitians and co-founders of the Rooted Project, Rosie Saunt and Helen West. Rosie, Helen, we're living through a wellness crisis right now. I feel like we're just surrounded by turmeric lattes and placenta pills and activated charcoal, keto, paleo, where people are desperately trying to nail a healthy diet using these sorts of hacks. Myth-busting is at the core of Is Butter a Carb? Why do you think we're seeing so many of these fads and any of them actually work? The answer is quite complex and multifactorial. Um, Quite often with these things we get drawn into there's a thread of science running through Mm. so part of it's true but then when you dig deeper you can see gaps and holes and lots of misinformation quite often people feel drawn towards these things because there might be gaps in the healthcare system for example so that's interesting yes so they're, they're looking for an answer that might be a quick fix or they haven't got the answers when they've been going to the doctor, for example. We're we're sort of obsessed with trying to be more pure or trying to enhance our wellness. A lot of people aren't really happy with their current state of health. And I don't really think that we should make people feel, we we shouldn't shame people for falling into these traps and they shouldn't feel belittled because we've all been there and we've all done it and there are a lot of very good reasons for for falling into them we live quite fast-paced lives don't we and so Mm. we're looking for kind of a shortcut to make ourselves feel better to maybe give us an antidote for for like feeling tired for example or and there's something called confirmation bias which is where Mm. we look for what we believe already um, which is quite often the case in the in the wellness industry. I, I'm very interested in what you have to say about not shaming people who fall into these traps because I think I have been a person who've, who's done that before. And a lot of it, I think, is someone just wanting to feel good. You know, it, we, or we mm-hmm. think that it's... Um, aspirational and doing something good for ourselves so yes debunking these very specific things for me particularly pandora doesn't swallow any of that guff but that's very helpful and i think we have to remember that anecdotes are very compelling and often the charlatans out there are the ones who are shouting the loudest so you do get heard um so definitely we shouldn't feel bad despite being intelligent people falling into these traps I think that's one of the reasons we set up the Rooted Project originally as well was because we were getting asked so many questions as dietitians about these kind of food trends and fads and actually we had to spend quite a bit of time on picking them and to go and look at the science mm. and navigate it. So with four years training trying to work this out and we have to take the time, how is the average person going to navigate it? So it is quite confusing and it's really understandable that people fall for mm. food fads and myths. Yeah. So these placenta pills? So placenta pills, so obviously the placenta is an organ which provides lots of nutrients for your baby Um, and the idea is that after you've given birth you eat your placenta whether that's raw in a sort of fruit or vegetable smoothie or you get it dehydrated and turned into placenta pills. I'm up for it, I don't Um, know why you're walking. It sounds intriguing (laughs) and obviously if the placenta is a nutrient rich organ it makes sense after you've given birth you're maybe feeling blue lethargic to eat something that's nutritious the the issue is when you unpick the research um 
the the evidence is either mainly anecdotal so scientists speak to women who have done this and they say they feel better but how do we know that that's Mm. not a placebo effect Mm. and then when we look at very very good studies so randomized control trials where some women are given a placenta pill and some women are given dehydrated um, beef as a placebo so as the the fake option the iron levels don't go up in the blood mood doesn't change Um, so we need we need more research but the evidence isn't isn't robust certainly and also there's an issue with um, health and safety because the industry at the moment isn't regulated that's what I think is quite worrying my sister's a midwife and uh, when I had my baby someone was like is anyone coming to pick up the placenta and I was like is it that simple my sister said anyone like you or I could go to the hostel dolly and be like I'm just going to pick up that dry cleaning I'm going to pick up your placenta and turn it into pills there's no like certificate no not at the moment and um, I'm sure there there are lots of people out there following good practice but we are dealing with live tissue here so it could be some risk of infection and things and the other thing that I think of whenever I hear about the because I am very interested in this the kind of historic and the ancient and the kind of the anecdotal and almost yes. the folkloric about like this tradition of eating one's placenta is that you do wonder how much of it there is an element of that so many mothers and women going through birth I think feel of bravado mm. of that somehow it's mm. it shows kind of a strength of motherhood or something absolutely because historically animals and and humans have eaten their placenta exactly and quite often we're looking back to ancient wisdom mm. for, for answers of how to make ourselves feel better mm. I think as well with a lot of these trends, there is an element of social signalling. So, oh, precisely. So you're, yeah. you're bringing all of that in, aren't you? Sort mm-hmm. of telling people that that's what you did and it sort of makes you feel part of a tribe and part of a group it, that are doing It's quite like a middle-classy goop thing as well. I feel like placenta pills aren't wildly different to the whole sort of vagina steaming jade eggs, all type of that, like, kind of having this like holistic look at your vagina and birth, but... As you say, the science behind it is not necessarily... Yes. And, and often these things are harmless. I think with placenta pills, we, we need more research because there's been some studies showing that there are levels of toxins because the placenta is obviously filtering out toxins as well. Mm. So that's something to, to keep in mind as well. Okay, from placenta pills to turmeric lattes. Yes, yeah, so turmeric lattes, are again, they're really popular. but um, And there is a thread of science running through that as well. So there's a compound in turmeric called curcumin that um, is thought to have sort of anti-inflammatory properties. Um, but what what a lot of people are looking at is kind of test tube studies that show that you know very very high levels of curcumin cause anti-inflammatory properties in a test tube essentially and when you kind of translate that to people that effect kind of isn't there right so for the turmeric to have an impact you'd have to have a lot more than you get in say a single latte um i think some people's argument would be that if you had you know lattes every day turmeric lattes every day that you would then get an effect but we can't that's really difficult to study so it's one of those kind Mm of again not a harmful trend but something that isn't going to kind of cure cancer or you Mm. have any wild kind of effects on the body and also we mustn't forget that turmeric latte does just taste like a milky korma in a takeaway cup (laughs) you You like it no i do not like it i I liked i liked the color of it but i think it's particularly revolting i also have to say i think that Kombucha is revolting. And on the subject of kombucha, which is about five pounds for a miniature bottle in my local cafe, this wellness, this kind of branded wellness Mm. that's so popular now is very, very expensive as well. It's 
an issue about privilege and mm-hmm. choice. A, a lot of us are in a position where we're able to choose what we want to eat. Um, that might be because food around us is in abundance. We're physically able to cook from scratch. We have the time. So we're able to be to be picky, but not everyone is in that position. So we need to be very careful when we're being judgmental or trying not to be judgmental about people's dietary choices because we're not in their shoes. No, I think one of the things that we forget is although we focus quite strongly on diet as a, a measure of healthfulness, um, poverty is probably one of the biggest factors that impacts health and there's something like 19 years life expectancy difference between the 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 most deprived and the least deprived areas of the UK which is huge yeah Yeah, it's massive so I think you know if you have a roof over your head um, enough food to eat and you have the privilege to be able to make choices about what you eat then you're already doing pretty well on the health front and wellness is definitely kind of that health optimization thing that people are interested in kind of biohacking and it's definitely the realm of the privileged I'd say and celery juice is a new one that I keep reading a lot about. The supermodel Miranda Kerr recently told a magazine that her whole family has a shot of celery juice in the mornings. Even her newborn baby, she just syringes a little yeah. bit of celery juice into when him. When you say syringe, in the mouth. What's it called? Isn't that yeah, a syringe? In a, in a pipette, yeah. Yeah, like a, you know, like you put cow pollen. Yeah. Okay. Not cool. into the bloodstream. Yeah, so he's not like shooting up celery. <laughs> he's not shooting up celery, okay. Jane. What's the science behind that one? So this is a really interesting one. This, is, this has been popularised by a man called the Medical Medium. So he gets his information by speaking to ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> is that woo-woo enough for you, Dolly? <laughs> Nailed it, love it. <laughs> and he claims that drinking celery juice can cure a range of ailments and chronic chronic illnesses like eczema, IBS, psoriasis, diabetes. diabetes. The, the, the list is quite endless actually of the things that he claims. Is there anything in that? But what's really interesting is if you take a step back you can actually see how easy it is to get drawn in despite it seeming so ridiculous that he speaks to ghosts to get his information. So first of all, he's offering a simple solution to a really complex problem. That person who has that chronic disease isn't getting the answers. All they need to do is drink celery juice on an empty stomach in the morning and that will will cure cure them. Why not just try it? It doesn't sound like it's going to do any harm. Then there are quite strict instructions you need to follow. And this seems to validate what he's saying even more. There's sort of a method to the madness. So it has to be on an empty stomach. It can't be whole celery because then it doesn't work. You have to juice it. And then also the fact that he gets his information from ghosts, instead of science, he's appealing to divine knowledge which is actually a very persuasive tool. Because so you can't argue with You can't with argue God. with it. He claims to know things before science knows the answers mm. themselves. Mm. And be- because what he's claiming is that there's something in celery... Um, it's called un- um, undiscovered cluster salts. Undiscovered cluster salts. And they're the magical component. And his book is like high on Amazon, isn't it? Yes. So the, the original article about celery juice was featured on Goop. So I think it's... <laughs> it, it's, it's but here's what's interesting is that because there's no accountability of the trail of information really anymore especially not with ghosts when you when you said (laughs) celery juice the first thing i thought was oh yeah so my agent a very dear friend of mine claire drinks celery juice every morning and she drinks it on an empty stomach i think and she was talking to me (laughs) (laughs) Um, and she was talking to me about the effects of it and she i was like oh 
that sounds really good and apparently really improves your skin and you, you feel really energized in the morning and I was like okay so there must be something in this someone clever must have told that to her and Claire is someone who definitely wouldn't take in the advice of someone who speaks to ghosts so there must have been some sort of chain reaction yes. where we can't find the source of it and now the source has been revealed and I'm like I'm not buying a fucking juice <laughs> <laughs> that's why I was thinking of doing this but obviously it's fine to drink celery juice in the morning if you enjoy it and mm. if it makes you feel good and I think there's no danger in kind of dipping into into these fads if you enjoy them like I said and they're kind of part of your everyday routine and they're not impacting on your life but the danger comes when there's somebody that's perhaps in a really vulnerable situation yes. so p- perhaps that person has cancer or perhaps that person has we have seen that with the Australian was she the wellness warrior who died of cancer hoping that coffee enemas and a juice diet could yeah so wellness could cure her cancer yeah and i think with jessica ainsco what's obviously when people have a disease like cancer autonomy over your body is really important so if you choose not to go forward and have chemotherapy or any of the medical therapies and you want to do something else that's entirely up to you but i think what we object to is is more about the misinformation side of it so people need to be able to make an informed choice about what treatment is going to serve them best um and for somebody like jessica ainsco it's quite sad because I think she really did believe that Gerson therapy, which was the therapy that she chose, that involved things like juicing, coffee enemas, um, eating a raw diet. She really believed that that would help cure her. And in fact, she went a stage further and claimed on her wildly popular blog that it had cured her. I mean, that's what worries me as well, because of the contagion of people mm. reading that. And and when you talk about wellness like that, I mean, I've been looking a little bit into wellness for something I'm writing and the kind of... the the interesting but also like worrying thing is that a lot of wellness comes from a time before modern medicine so Mm. it's it's subverting all that medical progression that Mm. we've made and that that really scares me that scares me that you know if the fact that there's not a lot of science behind a lot of these things that we've been talking about doesn't actually surprise me probably because I'm friends with Rosie so there's like literally nothing that I believe in now that didn't already exist like five years ago Um, but I think what really worries me is that people could start to feel like um, I know medicine doesn't work for everyone and I totally understand that sometimes people have to find their own path and alternative medicine can can really work but you know just hearing about coffee enemas curing cancer like that like terrifies me that who could get hold of that knowledge and think it could work? Of course. And obviously there's a spectrum of harm and that's right at yes. the end of, of totally very harmful. But what we, we are seeing is a, a rise in orthorexia. So people may pursue wellness and dip in and out of fads and be completely fine. Mm. But there is a danger that this could turn into an obsession with, with purity. With and, the, and orthorexia is when people are obsessed with eating healthily, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, it's an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating to the point that it has a detrimental effect on your health. And it's a recognised eating disorder now, isn't it? It's, I think it's on the way to yeah. I don't think it's in the, in the official categories right. yet, but it's definitely something that is being discussed more and more in eating disorder circles. Yeah. Just because it's such a new, relatively new term. And and speaking of eating disorders, I've written about and spoken about, I suffered from disordered eating Mm. uh, in my early 20s, which I then spent kind of my mid-20s recovering from. And there is no coincidence in the fact that I also post-recovery have been someone who has been quite obsessed with uh, health fads. And I gave up meat six years ago for ethical reasons, but I also think 
there must be some sort of, there's so many people who have had addictive behaviours who then end up restricting a part of their diet. That's not something like my psychological reasons for that is not something I'm going to get into now. But I'm interested to know what your thoughts are between how vulnerable people are when it comes to wellness who have suffered from eating disorders in the past. I think I think people that have had an eating disorder and have that predisposition are quite vulnerable with wellness. I know as someone that works with eating disorders for some people it can be a stepping stone towards recovery and I say that with I say that with reservations uh, because for other people it's a way of disguising further Mm -hmm. disordered eating so it's really individual but I would sort of call it the land of not recovered enough sometimes Mm. with some people Mm. because you can just feel that you're focusing on health now instead of this instead of body size and body weight eating disorders aren't that simple but you know the 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 fixation can be one thing or another and I think wellness can be part of that definitely Mm. and for some people it can be a trigger to spiral into an eating disorder that have never had an eating disorder Mm. before as well so it's really individual but it's definitely it's definitely a risky area and I suppose the fact that it is individual makes it so difficult in learning how to manage it because I know for me being kind of more obsessive about nutrients than I was before or making these kind of ethical choices around um, meat and the fish welfare that I eat that is the that that's a healthy way for me to harness an obsession so for me that has been manageable and that has led to a really healthy life with a great relationship with food but as you said I can see with others that could be um, just the starting point of a real spiral and a lot of this advice comes via social media there are a lot of kind of insta nutritionists now and I think it's really important to make the distinction between what you guys are and what a nutritionist is which is dietetics is a four-year science degree that you both had to complete in order to be dietitians and a nutritionist takes just two weeks training does it ever concern you because it concerns me that a lot of the people dispensing this advice because if I didn't know you I I wouldn't know that there was particularly any difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist if I was just looking on Instagram and I actually see a lot of that advice dispensed that I just don't agree with Mm. at all whether it's to do with like carb avoiding or or the shame works both ways Mm. you know people who are like god you're so retro when they see me eating a packet of crisps like I think I think the knowledge around the different levels of authority is is really like blurry um, on the internet. So I think it's probably important to explain a little bit about the differences between nutritionists, dietitians. So the term nutritionist isn't protected. Dolly, Pandora, you could call yourself a nutritionist right now. Set up a clinic on Harley Street. But there I are... Nutri- pity the people who come to my <laughs> You describe them pickled onion monster. Roast beef. Roast beef. But, yes. beef, yeah. <laughs> but um, there, are, there are very well-qualified nutritionists out there who have done robust, rigorous degrees, PhDs, and are working out there in the industry. So that's what to look for if you want to see a nutritionist. Dietitians, um, as you said, have done a four-year degree minimum. And also we're governed by a code of ethical conduct and uh, we have to abide by that by law to to ensure that we do no harm and are working ethically and in an evidence-based way. Quite an interesting thing we're seeing in the wellness industry is a phenomenon called the Dunning-Kruger effect. So if you imagine you go and do a little nutrition course online, two-week nutrition course, and you get a bit more knowledge, your confidence will increase and 
you might start shouting a bit louder, feeling very sure about yourself and what you know. So that's what we might see uh, within the realms of some of these self-styled nutrition gurus. But if you then get a bit more knowledge, uh, so this is actually plotted on a curve, say you go and do a degree like we did, you start to lose confidence because you realise there's a lot more out there and the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. So there's there's then a drop in confidence and that's what we sometimes see within the the industry of dietetics. Um, dietitians lack some confidence sometimes because they don't want to say anything wrong because they understand how complex and nuanced mm. the nutrition science is. So that's that's something that's really interesting and important for people to just be aware of and look out for. And then I think as you gain more and more and more knowledge, you you gain your confidence back again. I what you were saying, Rosie, about uh, choice and kind of that effect of the more you know, the more kind of terrifying it is. I think is something that can be like broadly applied to the human experience is right now we live in a world of kind of overwhelming choice and there's a psychologist called Barry Schwartz who coined this notion in uh, 2004 called the paradox of choice where he basically said we've got more choice than we've ever had before and we make better choices overall but we are less sure of those choices is that something you see in the wellness sector Yes, definitely. And it's playing into kind of middle class anxieties, like you've said before. Um, there is a nutritionist called Michelle Allison, so, aka the fat nutritionist, that wrote an amazing piece in The Atlantic called Eating Towards Immortality that really covers this topic and touches on how wellness is kind of a distraction that stops us kind of staring in the face of our own mortality. Mm. And that's why it's such a middle class kind of pastime, if you will, yeah. because, you know, most of us already have all of the basics that we need to to survive so it's a way of kind of not looking at ourselves in the mirror when it comes to death and facing death in the mirror we'll link that piece in the show notes one of the chapters i know will be particularly relevant to so many women that i know including my darling co-host uh is about eating for a healthy gut it's astonishing how many women i know suffer from ibs or very serious bloating issues that make them feel very self-conscious or uncomfortable. Is it a particularly female issue? Yes. So interestingly, IBS is thought to be more predominantly seen in women. I think it's about 60% of the people that have have an IBS diagnosis uh, are women. Because we don't know that much about IBS, because the pathology of it and the way that it progresses isn't really properly understood, we don't know why that is. It could be because of our genetics or our hormones or that kind of thing. But it does seem to affect women more than men. Or it could be because women present to the the doctor. Yes, yeah. I, I think... A lot of people nowadays who have tummy problems can jump to self-diagnosing as well. It's really important if someone thinks they've got a problem to go to the GP and not cut things out of their diets before they jump to conclusions because that firstly could be harmful if you're cutting out a wide range of foods but also if you potentially had celiac disease if you cut gluten out of your diet before you have the celiac test your test will be negative even if you have celiac disease. And you have celiac disease, Rosie. I have celiac disease, yes. Um, There are about half a million undiagnosed celiacs out there and it's quite a hard disease to diagnose because it presents in the same way as lots of other issues like IBS. So if anyone's got tummy problems, pop to your GP without removing anything from your diet first, talk to them about your symptoms. They might do a celiac blood test and just wait to see what that result is. And if that comes back negative, it might be that the the doctor refers you on somewhere else uh, to a gut doctor, but they might diagnose you with IBS. I've had, as someone that does have IBS, I've had, I'd say nothing short of a nightmare trying to figure out 
how to avoid bloating issues. And I think what you were saying, Helen, earlier about like really trusting what you know is I did go and see a, you know, a lot of experts or read a lot of books and a lot of what I was experiencing didn't match up with what I was reading. You know, so a lot of the literature um, says around not eating too much bread, but bread's never been an issue for me. A lot of the literature says, you know, that ginger tea can be good, but that actually gives me a terrible stomach ache. And then alternatively, garlic's got lots of extolling the health benefits, but, you know, I feel unbelievably mm. if I have garlic. So I've now kind of come out the other side where I just, I, I just listen, try and listen to what, I'm eating and even keeping a food diary what can flare up some days doesn't on the others so then you start looking at well I started looking at like well how much did I sleep and how stressed Mm. was I and where was I in like my menstrual cycle you know it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to solve and I think that's why so many people find stomach issues so frustrating but there isn't always an answer from a professional I'm you know, and I I feel bad saying that to people out there who hope there is an answer, but I think stomachs are so difficult to understand. One of the things I would say about that is that the time to seek a professional's help would be if you're just cutting out food after food after food after food and your diet's becoming extremely restrictive. Because I think one of the problems with IBS and gut problems, like you say, is that they're very complex and different things can trigger on different days. And sometimes when you're trying to work through that on your own, um, you can get into a bit of a bit of a pickle and really restrict your diet. So I've seen quite a lot of people that have come to me after years of trying to solve their IBS issues that are only eating mm. maybe three or four different foods and mm. then have got nutritional deficiencies and things like that. So if it's causing you anxiety or you're finding that your diet's becoming overly restrictive, that's definitely the time to seek the help of a professional. And just building on that, um, some people may have heard of something called the low FODMAP diet, which is a temporary temporary restrictive diet, uh, taking some carb- carbohydrates out. There are familiar in the gut to relieve your IBS symptoms but what some people don't realize is that these foods or certain foods are meant to be reintroduced so you see what triggers uh, what your triggers are right. I think there's some misinformation out there on, on the internet implying that the low FODMAP diet is for life and I think that's where part of the Helen see some yeah some we know issues. that people we know that people who follow a low FODMAP diet and don't reintroduce the foods end up with reduced gut bacteria diversity um, and that when they then try and reintroduce these foods they become more sensitised to them so it's not it's quite a new diet and we don't really know the long term health effects it's a hard effects. diet to follow as well I've it's never really managed it's, yeah. it's incredibly restrictive while we're on the subject of digestion and just while I have you here debunking everything for me <laughs> Um, The things that I've been told have helped with digestion are, or having a healthy gut, have been kimchi, Mm -hmm. um, sauerkraut, mint tea, and kombucha. Can we go through those? (laughs) So I don't know about mint tea, but um, all of the other ones that you've mentioned all have probiotics in them. Um, So they definitely can help with a healthy gut. So we found one. We found something. (laughs) (laughs) Some people might find that they're quite sensitive to them, but for a lot of people, they're a way of getting good bacteria and probiotics into your diet. Most of them that are kind of commercially produced, maybe say your kind of bottle of kombucha, it'd be really difficult to know what strains of bacteria in there and how much of it there is because they're kind of brewed like in, independently. Um, so they're not really therapies, if that makes sense. You can't be like, you know, you've got a sore tummy, have 
three bottles of this kombucha a day and that mm. will fix it. it. Um, but you can, including them in your diet regularly is, is uh, you know, is a good way to get some healthy bacteria into your diet. Helen, you're particularly interested in where diet culture and moral stigma intersect. How has this played out in the dialogue around healthy eating or bodies right now? Did you see the recent Nike mannequin or fatakin, as journalist Tanya Gold controversially called it, for all? And what did you make of that? So I love the mannequin and I strongly disagreed with Tanya Gold's article was definitely not one of my favorites so did we incidentally we should we should declare (laughs) so I think I think the first thing to say is exercises for everybody Um, and I think we do have an element in our society of fat phobia um, or weight bias as we sort of call it in the literature and you know I just think people in high weight bodies can't win they're kind of ostracized by society kind of punished for being fat is is probably the best way of saying it um but then we don't want to provide clothes for them to wear to exercise in and be active in so it's a double bind a double bind yeah what's interesting about it is i think there's a definitely been an increase in interest in the body positivity movement Mm. but at the same time there's a lot of kind of caveats with that and people are saying well it's okay to be body positive as long as you're healthy or it's okay to be body positive as long as you're not fat and i think part of that comes stems from this idea that weight is a behavior that people are fully in their in control of their own body weight mm. and obviously behavior does play a part in body weight but weight isn't a behavior it's influenced by social factors environmental factors your genetics Mm. your psychology all of these things poverty is the biggest risk factor for high weight for example and again it comes back to that that idea of choice um and privilege and thinking that everybody has the same options that we do i'd also love to talk to you about meat a little bit as there are growing conversations around whether or not we should be meat free or how much we should reduce our meat intake i'm a vegetarian technically a pescatarian and the veganism movement is something that's really growing very rapidly because of personally i think very valid concerns about animal welfare mm-hmm. the planet or just even personal health what are your thoughts on this on this movement towards veganism eating for health and eating for the planet or for environmental reasons are two three very important things but very difficult to balance altogether and we don't have an answer to give everyone something that everyone can all follow we fully support anyone who wants to follow a vegan diet or become more plant-based we we're seeing time and time again in research that uh, the most long-lived populations in the world tend to primarily follow a plant-based diet what this doesn't mean is someone has to become vegan that they don't necessarily have to but it might be a good idea to think about adding more plant-based foods into their diet particularly as we know in the UK we're only getting about half the fibre we need per day that's where fibre comes from all of your plant foods not getting our five a day fruit and veg so it's a good idea to start thinking in that direction where Helen and I have a bit of an issue is when people are making that change or that that choice Um, based on misinformation so whether it's after watching a scaremongering documentary that perhaps is pushing an agenda that is also pushing bad science and that's something we've 
we've seen and we've tried to unpick on social media uh, potentially unethical branding or marketing for example we've seen some nut milks that are marketed as plant powered but actually when you look at the ingredients list it's three percent almonds and the rest is water Mm. so we just want to make sure that people are choosing these foods because they are actually good for you and nutritious Um, not saying nut milks aren't but there there can be gray areas with with Mm. the marketing Mm. moving away from specific dietary tips and looking more at philosophy and outlook on eating what do you think the key to a happy and healthy relationship with food is because sadly I think for so many people that's such a long-term problem and sadly I've seen with so many people one that they they just they're in a cycle that they cannot break out of through all the work that you do is there anything that you've noticed helps create a kind of um happy and content relationship with this thing that has to be in our life three times a day or even through your own diets how is it that you have kind of come to a place of like healthy happy diet I I think ironically my diet has relaxed so much more since becoming a dietitian what I mean by that is people might look at what I'm eating and think oh she's eating she's eating crisps or she's eating xyz it's it's very varied and balanced in um i'd say i've got a very very good relationship with food whereas before becoming a dietitian i might have read about oh become i could do follow a raw food diet or there's this fad that fad so i'm definitely because i'm so aware that there isn't one best way to eat i've i don't mind Mm. really Mm. and i've just embraced the relaxed Root. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, sorry. I was just also going to say there's there's a graphic in our book about what balance might look like, um, and I really really love that drawing. It's a wheel, and it shows that it's not just about the food on your plate, but also your relationship with food. Um, it should be fluid. It should be embracing celebrations. It should be cooking from scratch if you're able to, but eating convenience foods if if, if that's what you need to do. I remember something you said to me actually about kind of making sure you factor in your your happiness not just the actual food itself is when I was pregnant and I'd eaten I think a whole packet of yum yums and I said to you oh my god I feel so bad I just had a whole tray of yum yums and you were like well how did you feel when you ate them and I was like I felt so good it was like the best treat and you were like well then I think that that was a that was a good thing you know you're heavily pregnant you were really craving a snack obviously don't eat yum don't eat a whole tray of yum yums every single day but that that incident is not a bad thing and I thought that was really important and I thought how lucky I was to have someone in my life that could tell me that because I wasn't actually feeling bad because I'd eaten them I really enjoyed them and yeah. I felt like I'd kind of deserved that treat I was feeling bad because of the things that I read out there that made me feel like I should feel bad. No food is intrinsically good or bad. Context really, really matters. Such an important point to make, I think. Yeah, I think as well from a from a woman's point of view, a lot of women have a fraught relationship with food because they have a fraught relationship with their bodies yes. and because of pressures on, on female bodies. So I think actually one of the best things that you can do is kind of... I know people say this all the time, but diversify your social media feed. Lots of look at lots of different types of people because body diversity is normal. You know, healthy balanced diets include all foods. For some people that have health conditions, they may not. But for most of us, we can eat most things in in moderation and and do pretty fine. Rosie, you're my oldest best friend. I've known you for almost twenty eight years, and your son, my godson, has been incredibly unwell over the writing and the publishing of this book. I think it's so important to salute you for managing to create what you and Helen have 
produced it's every parent's worst nightmare what you've been going through and you've been living it for eight months with a long stretch to go I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the experience of life when you have a seriously ill child and how has that affected the work that you are doing now so last November when Helen and I we'd finished writing most of the book but we were sort of at the copy editing stage my baby Enzo had been quite unwell on and off for a few months we knew something was up but we weren't quite sure what been to Ernie about three times probably saw about eight different GPs and practitioners and then went into Ernie and um, he he got diagnosed with a form of infant leukemia so it's leukemia that affects babies under the age of one at diagnosis and unfortunately despite amazing advances with childhood leukemia where there's often a sort of 80-90% cure rate with infant ALL which is what Enzo has scientists are still struggling um it is there's a high relapse rate there's a high chance of the leukemia coming back within the first year and when that happens the body is typically very resistant to chemo and because the disease is so aggressive quite aggressive chemo is needed initially to try and get them in remission so this means long inpatient stays so when Enzo was diagnosed we went pretty much straight from that we went straight from hospital to Great Ormond Street and we didn't leave that room for about eight weeks um you are extremely isolated because the baby has no immune system anymore and it's extremely stressful so we didn't go home for eight weeks and it's it's been in, in and out of inpatient stays like that I think Enzo so Enzo's been responding well to chemo which is brilliant he's had about 150 doses of chemo 15 general anaesthetics so far 25 blood and platelet transfusions and the periods when we're at home we're still either in recovery or having chemo but we've still got our bag packed to rush to hospital in an emergency and we've had to do that 30 times already so even when we're at home it's not a breeze Mm -hmm. and the, the chemo is so harsh on their bodies that apparently a child or adult wouldn't be able to survive the toxicity but it's what we need to do to get rid of this aggressive disease um one of the things i found most difficult weirdly is nappy changes so because the chemo comes out in in the wee and the poo you have to change the nappy really quickly otherwise the baby's skin can break down Mm. and be a source of infection so that's been (laughs) a main part of our life really and you have to wear gloves to protect us from the toxicity um so a lot of our life is revolving around nappy changes at the moment and it quite literally it was like a grenade going off in in our life between my family but also Helen and me um Helen I called you up at, at hospital told you and then you just said don't worry about it <laughs> and you were just flushing around in the background um tying up all of the loose ends um didn't make me feel worried at all um so I can't believe we've got this book out now actually it's quite amazing (laughs) (laughs) yeah you've been completely Um, amazing Helen Rosie Rosie has said has has it made you feel like you know some of what we're talking about today Mm. or or the or some of these aspects of diet culture has it made you think god this is all so trivial you know I'd do anything for Enzo just to want to eat a a crisp or has it kind of 
armed you because I imagine that going in and out of hostel means it's quite hard for Mm. you and your husband to have a healthy diet to be trying to get a healthy diet into Enzo who's feeling so unwell Mm. how has that sort of framed what you've been going through I I think right at the beginning of diagnosis within the first few days I did feel a bit like that I didn't want to look at photos on Instagram of people with children at similar age to Enzo having a good time but actually now I, I don't get affected by these things. Friends and family often caveat things when they tell me about a problem they're having. And I, I, I do still see that it, everything is relative. Um, this has definitely made me stronger. And what Ant and I are trying to do at the moment is just make every day count and have a really good time when Enzo's well enough, make his day full of joy and happiness. Um, Diet does go out of the window with cancer quite often. Um, Enzo regularly won't be eating for weeks and we'll have to feed him through a tube. So when it gets to the point that he'll start eating again, sometimes that might be crisps and we celebrate so much and that's the most exciting thing. So we've got quite a relaxed (laughs) food situation at home at the moment. We've just been through three weeks of steroids where we don't have to do steroids again, luckily, where you turn into a hungry monster. Apparently you have an insatiable appetite. So we've been going through loaves and loaves of bread. (laughs) (laughs) Constant loaves. Yeah. did want to highlight how amazing all the haematology doctors and nurses have been um wanted to thank friends and family who have been incredibly supportive who have given blood even strangers have messaged me and said they've given blood which is just amazing Um, so thank you so much and if people want to read more of some of the interviews you've done or hear more about what the Rooter Project is up to, what are your social handles, both for the Rooter Project and for you guys personally? So Rooter Project at Rooted underscore project and then at Rosie underscore Saunt. Yeah, and I'm at Helen Lou West, mostly on Twitter, I think, for my personal. I don't do much on Instagram. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on. We loved Is Butter a Carb? I'm sure our listeners will too. And it's even more amazing to know how how well put together and incredible this book is given what you have been going through Rosie and how you've supported her Helen it's wonderful to see thank you thank you is butter a carb is out now thank you very much for listening to the high low you can rate review and subscribe on itunes it helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts you can email us the high low show at gmail.com or tweet us at the high low show bye-bye Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.